Today on the ESG Beat, we will speak with Veronica Root Martinez, professor of law at Notre Dame University. Professor Martinez is one of the nation's foremost experts on corporate compliance. Today, we will discuss her recent paper, Complex Compliance Investigations. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Veronica. Thanks so much for having me. As someone who believes strongly in the power of the compliance function to prevent corporate misconduct, I am so excited to share your recent paper, Complex Compliance Investigation. But before we get into your paper, which I loved, by the way, can you define the compliance function for us? Sure. So at a high level, when I talk about compliance, I am talking about the need of organizations to ensure that they and their members comply with legal and regulatory mandates industry standards, and their own internal norms. A compliance program is unlikely to be successful if it, is only, if it only concerns itself with conduct that is legally viable. Um, the corporation must also stay abreast with what those in their industry are doing, as well as the corporation's own internal values and expectations. Additionally, a, a corporation with a strong compliance program will also incorporate specific policies and procedures to ensure that their members are acting ethically. Um, at a more specific level, all compliance programs must include components that prevent, detect, investigate, and remediate miscon- misconduct. These four components are found in pretty much every compliance program. So would you say that compliance and the compliance function has gotten broader and has moved away from legal compliance or sort of check-the-box compliance in order to prevent legal risks to a much broader ambit? So I guess it would depend on who you are talking to. So when legal scholars talk about compliance, they are often thinking through uh, rote legal compliance. Did you comply with the regulation or did you not? Um, I think people within industry have almost always thought of their function more broadly. Um, So compliance functions have often used the rhetoric of ethics and compliance. And when you talk to chief compliance officers, uh, they often talk about the importance of ethics and adhering to certain values and integrity, um, uh, values, uh, so characteristics that are, that are more intangible. Um, so to a certain extent, it depends on what audience you're talking to. My work in part is attempting to bridge, to serve as a bridge between those two camps. Um, so I am a legal scholar, but I spend time in um, familiarizing myself um, with literature from organizational behavior, and then also attempting to stay pretty close to people in practice. Yeah, and that really comes through in your academic work, and that work is also corroborated by my experience with compliance officers and general counsel seeing the ambit as much broader and really always seeing ethics and compliance as uh, merged functions or perspectives. As you point out in your paper, though, despite the immense effort from governments stakeholders and academics, as well as, you know, the extraordinary time and resources spent by companies, the compliance function still sadly fails to prevent misconduct. And even more tragically, as you point out, this misconduct, which harms employees and shareholders in society, was entirely avoidable. So why do these missteps keep happening and how can companies avoid them? So there are likely a number of reasons these compliance failures keep happening, but in this paper, I look at the detection and investigative stages of the compliance process. Um, Time after time, firms are aware of some sort of compliance failure, but for some reason fail to detect the full scope of the problem, 
or fail to properly investigate or take appropriate steps after learning that a problem occurred. When that happens, the misconduct continues to grow and become more significant until it triggers a widespread compliance failure within the firm. An example of this would be the Wells Fargo fake account scandal, where the board was aware it had some issues with the creation of fake accounts, but failed to fully investigate the problem, and it grew and festered until it became a massive scandal. Um, so this article looks at compliance failures within that detection to investigative stage of the compliance process and argues that firms must focus on adopting process-based reforms that will bolster the firm's investigations into complex compliance failures, thereby acting as a safety net when compliance programs fail to detect or appropriately respond to misconduct within a firm. Um, much of compliance work to date is focused on how to structure a compliance program, but this article is concerned with process. Um, so what I mean by that, so structure refers to the manner of separating the work in an organization into subunits and dividing the control of and responsibilities for the work. The field of compliance relies heavily on these insights from corporate governance, which has led to a focus on what organizational structures will lead to a, a compliance program likely to prevent and to detect misconduct within firms. But when it comes time to investigate potential incidents of misconduct and determine whether they are material events, often co uh, complex organizations must go beyond issues related to the best manner in which to structure a compliance program. Instead, this article argues that firms must focus on process-based reforms or the actions, practices, and routines firms employ to communicate and analyze information. Do you think that part of the reason that companies don't immediately look at process is because of the history of the compliance function and the historical context through which it arrives? Um, that, could, that could certainly be the case. So in large part, the focus on compliance is a result of the firm's self-policing responsibilities. And we can find a lot of different routes for self-policing, whether it is in law and economic scholarship or other places. But firms place the conduct of their employees and agents in an effort to ensure their compliance with legal and regulatory requirements, industry standards, and internal policies and procedures. The earliest conceptions of the compliance function were motivated by the policing model with the organizational sentencing guidelines admonishing firms to have effective ethics and compliance programs that would prevent and detect misconduct. When firms began developing their internal compliance programs, they were necessarily focused on how to structure those programs. Um, the earliest compliance efforts targeted particular areas of risk or legal mandates. So, for example, anti-money laundering compliance finds its origins in the Bank Secrecy Act of 1970. Um, compliance um, has continued to evolve, though, as corporations have evolved. So, um, while it might have been the case that at one time we had a small bank who had to deal with anti-money laundering as banks became larger and across broader um, geographic areas, and then the scope of what they were responsible for increased as well. So that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I really like that you focus on the process and in particular the specific steps of the process-based reforms. So I want to go back to that and ask you to just map out once more for us the different steps of the compliance process. Compliance process involves prevention, detection, investigation, and mediation. And most people talk a lot about prevention and detection in part because that is what is included in the organizational sentencing guidelines. But so of course you need to prevent. You have to put into place a compliance program that is likely to prevent misconduct. You might put in some sort of accounting controls to stop someone from being able to engage in an unlawful bribery. 
Um, and then you also need to be able to detect misconduct if um, something goes awry. You have to be able to stop remote employees from engaging in misconduct. And so, again, you might have some sort of accounting controls put in so that you can see if something kind of weird is going on with um, some money transfers or something like that. Um, but you also have to investigate. And we all know that. Um, we all know that um, that organizations um, conduct internal investigations and they have reason to believe that some sort of misconduct might have occurred. Um, but that is an integral part of the compliance process. Um, and then after the investigation, you have to fix it. So whatever happens, I mean, you, you have to engage in some sort of remediation effort. That might be quick. That might take a while. That that might be just a little um, uh, fix to your software. It might mean you need to make payments to victims. I mean, it depends on what the compliance failure was. Um, but the steps are prevention, detection, investigation, and remediation. And I, I really like to draw them in a little circle because the remediation efforts are going to flow into your prevention efforts, um, and it just kind of all flows together. So it's a it's a continual process that companies that are doing compliance well are treating it as a process that happens sort of continually, and the remediation flows right back into step one. That's right. So now let's look at some compliance failures that we all know about because they're headline grabbing GM and and Wells Fargo and. We know that despite significant resources, both companies failed to detect misconduct. What specific interventions would have pre prevented these failures? Sure. So just a little recap. So in, for General Motors, they had an ignition switch failure that caused the automobile to malfunction. And at General Motors, they had a centralized decision-making um, structure. And so um, they had uh, different different people from different teams on different committees um, in an effort to make sure – I'm sorry, they had a, um, a decentralized management structure. So they had different people on different committees in an, in an effort to ensure that people would talk to each other and that people would know what was going on and things of that nature. And yet it didn't matter. Um, so even though they had set up a compliance structure where – people from engineering and people from legal and people from product safety would all sit together around a table. Um, and even though they had evidence that there was something wrong with an ignition switch um, and that and the internal investigation after the fact demonstrated that there was awareness that something maybe was going wrong somewhere, um, no one took ownership of it for a long time and as a result, people were injured. Um, if you take Wells Fargo, there, they had they chose a structure where every individual bank had its own individual president, and the compliance person reported to the president, not to the corporate level um, compliance individual. So there was all these little mini fiefdoms. So the opposite sort of structure that General Motors had put into place. Um, there too, um, they had information about potential failures. Um, with regards to how um, employees were treating um, customer accounts and whether or not they were being fraudulently opened. But again, they had the information about it. It actually did make it all the way up to the board. The board sees the information and says, oh, this is such a low rate. It's obviously not a problem. And then no further investigations are going on. Um, and so when you have these failures in the detection to investigative stage, um, that's really problematic because you do know there is awareness that something has gone wrong, but you haven't figured out that it's material or you haven't figured out the significance 
of the problem. And so we have to think through different process-based reforms that might assist us in doing that. You see with General Motors and Wells Fargo, they chose different structures and that they still had um, problems. And this is in part because their information was, was ended up being held in different silos throughout the organization. And not all of the information was flowing um, to decision makers who could make um, change within the firm. Um, so um, for both General Motors and for Wells Fargo, one process-based reform might be to aggregate information. So for example, um, for General Motors, they were settling claims as a result of the ignition switch. And they had a policy that claims under a certain monetary threshold did not get elevated to the general counsel, that line associate DCs could, could just go ahead and settle those cases. But if they had a policy of, um, of grouping like cases and aggregating the settlements, then they might have thought to themselves, hey, yes, this only settled for $100,000, but guess what? We've had 10 of them. Maybe we should alert someone to this fact and we should look into this a little bit more um, closely. Um, the same thing for Wells Fargo. There was allegedly there were, there were allegedly calls to whistle, whistleblowers calling a complaint line um, and saying that fraudulent accounts were being opened, and then they were being investigated and saying, "Oh, it doesn't look meritorious." Well, it might be the case that you have whistleblowers calling in each individual um, claim you decide it doesn't have merit. But if you've got 50 people calling in, and I don't, I'm not saying that Wells Fargo did. But if you've got 50 people calling in saying, hey, people are opening fraudulent accounts, um, you should probably look into that, right? And so if you were aggravate, aggregating the type of whistleblower complaints you were getting to your hotline, that might also give you an, an idea of what's going on. Another process-based reform that would be easy to implement might be to have a few, not a lot, but a few standardized questions that you ask every time you conduct an internal investigation across departments. Um, because the reality is that you have different people conducting investigations. HR might conduct an investigation. Um, your general counsel might conduct an investigation. And, and, and your compliance people might conduct an investigation. And it depends on kind of how the complaint ended up filtering its way up through the organization. Um, but if everybody's at least asking the same three or four basic questions, that's going to give you a better opportunity to say, oh, wait, HR looked at that last week, actually, and oh, wait, legal looked at it three months ago, and now compliance is looking at it. Do we have an actual problem here? Is there some sort of um, significant um, thing that might be going on in the organization? So those would be two types of process-based reforms that you, you could layer into your compliance program regardless of the structure you've chosen for your particular compliance program. So now that we've talked about the specific reforms, and certainly um, I agree with you, those reforms both allow the company to see patterns rather than keep information in discrete silos. But are these process-based reforms a panacea for all compliance failures? What are the limits to these process-based reforms? Right. So certainly not. So if you if you don't have good prevention. Um, that's going to cause you a lot of problems, and so you do want to have certain um, prevention and detection mechanisms in place. If you don't have any detection mechanisms, that's not going to be helpful. Um, additionally, so your structure matters. So while your structure is not enough, um, your structure matters quite a bit. Um, and if you don't have good just general corporate governance structure, 
the process can't really do anything because it's not going to go anywhere. Additionally, you do have to have a firm thing that is committed to acting appropriately with integrity and with values. If you have a corrupt culture, it doesn't matter how many processes you put in place because then people are just going to dodge the processes or they're just not going to adhere to them in a meaningful way. And so you can only put process-based reforms in place that might – the only way for a process-based reform to be effective is if you're putting it in with a strong structure. Now, that structure might look different depending on your industry, your size, all these things. Um, and that you that you're not that you're not putting it into a company that is that has a corrupt culture. Um, additionally, this paper is really t- looking at a very narrow segment of the compliance process. It really is just looking at failure within the detection to investigative stage. I have other papers that look at different um, aspects of things, um, but this is really looking at that just narrow stage. I, so it started to bother me one day where I, I kept seeing these these really big failures that they knew about. But the company knew about, and I thought, well, but you knew. You knew that there was a fake account over here, um, and you knew that there was something going um, wrong with the ignition switch. So how do we take what you know and act on it in a way that you get meaningful information so that you know that, hey, this thing that we were alerted to actually is important versus thinking it's not important and just moving on until it becomes a bigger problem. And when you really look at the board's fiduciary duties, your proposal seems to fit very well with those duties because the board has a duty to make itself aware of red flags and to respond to red flags. And if the compliance process is is not um, functioning and it's not process-based, then those red flags can very easily go undetected. Uh, making it challenging for uh, the board to oversee risk. Right. I would agree with that completely. So that's part of the problem here is um, how do we, how do you as a board figure out whether or not something is material? Another process-based reform you might do is you might say, okay, we've got some inklings of these fake accounts being open. Let's send out a survey. Let's send out some sort of survey and see um, whether or not any employees um, know of, uh, have heard about anything related to fake accounts or something of that nature. Obviously, you can't ask the employee, did you open a fake account? They're not going to tell you. But so have you heard about other people doing apps? And kind of like a cultural assessment survey, but this would, these would be targeted surveys where, okay, we have an inkling that something might be going on. We need to figure out how, how widespread this is. And if it's actually important, if it's actually a big problem, or if it's just located in certain places and things of that nature. And that's just going to help the board do its job better by thinking through what inf- what these process-based reforms are really doing is helping you get better and more precise information about failures at an earlier point in time. Because it's much better for you to fix a problem with your ignition switch in year one than in year 10 just going to be a better outcome for the firm and society at large. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. So I always like to end the ESG beat by giving our guests two gifts, a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with the magic wand. If you could wave your wand and change something about the compliance process, what would that be? 
I think I would change how much it seems that firms are motivated by the potential of criminal prosecution and instead focus more heavily on creating ethical environments. So I think to a certain extent, when you, when you read through, if you start reading policy documents in, for compliance programs, um, you, well, one, you can tell they're written by a bunch of lawyers. But two, um, what you're seeing is a bunch of lawyers who are concerned with mitigating risks as related to criminal prosecution. And obviously, enforcement actions by the government are not ideal. You don't want them. There's a lot of liability. It can cause third-party liability. There's all sorts of bad things that can occur. But if we could get people to take a higher level view and think more broadly about how do we behave with integrity and with good values and things of that nature and focus on on operationalizing that and not saying we should have integrity and then moving on to the legal stuff. I actually think we'd end up with more compliant and more ethical organizations. That would be my kind of magic wand. So that goes towards creating a culture of compliance and addressing risk through culture and with a broader aperture than just legal risk. And just anecdotally, it seems that companies are moving in that direction as society's expectations change to have less tolerance for not only legal missteps, but ethical missteps, even when the law is not violated at all. Yeah, so I think that that's, I think I hear that from people in, in, from in industry a lot, particularly people who identify themselves as compliance professionals. I think that they would say ethics has always been important. It's always been an integral part of the program. The, the problem is, is the people who write the compliance policies are the lawyers, right? And what is in the policy, what is in the thing that you hand to your employee at the end of the day says integrity matter, and then it just has like a checklist on why you shouldn't write people. And so there's a disconnect there. And so my magic wand would look to dealing with a bit of that disconnect. So now to the crystal ball. Where where do you see the compliance function headed in light of the changing expectations that society is placing on business? So to be honest, given everything that's been going on in the past uh, few months, one of the things that I've read about recently is that firms have, as firms are having to contract due to economic downturn due to COVID-19, that one of the places of contraction is in a compliance department. And that's true even though certain compliance risks, like, for example, bribery, are probably going up because of that same downturn. And so my crystal ball says, and then you pair that with a period of, to a certain extent, uh, decreased enforcement activity, at least within the U.S. So you've had a period of decreased enforcement activity, now paired with an economic downturn, now paired with layoffs in compliance departments. And I'd say that an impact of that is you're going to have a bunch of compliance failures that are going to come through. And even though before everything with COVID happened, um, we had a lot of broad statements about the importance of caring about community and stakeholders and, and all of this and, and, and kind of more broad-based concerns. But the economic downturn, if you're, if you're contracting your compliance personnel, if you're contracting in your investment in these areas, then I think you're going to see an increase in misconduct. 
So maybe we should focus the investor and engagement focus on the compliance function. It, it has been focused recently on ESG initiatives, but you make a very good point that if the compliance function isn't well-resourced and operating, then of course we're going to see compliance failures. Right. And so I think, you know, ESG underlying the concerns of ESG are concerns, I think, about ethics. And what we could so if we can pivot to just more generally how how can organizations behave in a more ethical manner, whether that's in ESG, whether or not that's by valuing stakeholders more, or whether that's by um, making sure that we're acting, um, uh, that we're complying with legal and regulatory requirements. So I think a general bend towards ethics would be good um, and could be helpful in a variety of kind of governance concerns. Um, I just don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Veronica, I agree with you. It is imperative that companies continue to resource the compliance function, particularly today. Um, I also wanted to thank you for being here with us today and to thank you for focusing your research and your scholarship on the compliance function. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.